I'm Amy Andrus, Executive Director of the Inland Rivers Ports and Terminals Association. My co-host with me today is Captain Jeff Monroe, with the International Association of Maritime and Port Executives. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Amy. How are you today? That's right. I'm Captain Jeff Monroe. I'm the uh, Director of Education and Standards for the Association, and we have long enjoyed a great relationship with IRPT. Uh, and providing the training for their inland port executives as well as our international clients as well. So it's always been a great pleasure. Uh, I think one of the things we wanted to talk about today was the whole element of the challenges of infrastructure. And, you know, it's very interesting that a lot of people think about hard ground, their terminal facilities, what they control, what they own as their infrastructure. But really, the infrastructure really extends to not only what we control, but what we influence. And I think, Amy, one of the things that you're always talking about is the how much has to be invested in the inland waterways to keep the highways open, right, the marine highways open, just like we have to deal with in our, in our ports on the East Coast or the West Coast. Right. So the word infrastructure itself is just an umbrella word that's used in any industry that uh, that that means basic, a basic need, right? Infrastructure could be a basic need. Our water quality, our water supply that we drink here at home, the infrastructure that supports that, those are the pipes and the, the water uh, treatment facilities. Um, for the inland river transportation system, that might mean the river itself, the locks and the dams that, that help pool the water and, and provide that step-by-step step -step navigation. It could mean the channel itself, maybe even river structures. Infrastructure can mean, the, like you said, the land side, the ports and the terminals that operate on the river system. But what I really wanted to hit on today was infrastructure as it pertains to the river system. So the infrastructure of the actual river itself, again, the channel, the locks, the dams, and even the river structures themselves. Those are all operated and maintained by the Army Corps of Engineers. You know, it might be a good idea to explain to people why the Army Corps manages this. You know, in the United States, uh, as we formed as a nation, there was a lot of, you know, interstate uh, issues back and forth, even to do with trade. So uh, the Congress declared that the waterways, uh, wherever interstate commerce was supported, were actually the property of the federal government. So this is why the Army Corps of Engineers is responsible for the waterway infrastructure, not only in the inland rivers, but also in our coastal ports. And the U.S. Coast Guard is responsible for all the aids to navigation. So that's why the federal agencies do that. In many other places, uh, you'll find that sometimes the port authority might be responsible for a harbor like they are, for example, up in Canada and stuff. But in the United States, it's always the responsibility of the Army Corps or the Coast Guard for aids to navigation. And can you even imagine if that was not a federal responsibility, but rather a state responsibility, if we look at the Mississippi River, right here in St. Louis, for example, the Mississippi River divides uh, Illinois and Missouri, right? So if the management of the river itself was a state responsibility, and say, say Illinois didn't have the money to maintain the river system, but Iowa did, right? Where would you be? You wouldn't have the throughput capacity. You wouldn't have the ability to just bypass Illinois because Illinois didn't pay for theirs. So that's why it's a federal responsibility because it's a national asset. 
It right? is. And, and more tonnage. If you look at all the tonnage that goes down all the entire river system in the Western Rivers, there's more tonnage on that waterway than there are any, anywhere else in any location around the world. So let's actually talk about the Army Corps of Engineers and operation and maintenance. There's a hierarchy, right, of the leadership and how information, data, and even funding funnels through the hierarchy or the leadership. So, for example, our river system, it touches 38 different states in, around our nation. So we actually have different districts within the Army Corps of Engineers that are responsible to maintain and operate those rivers with multiple authorized purposes, right? So you, you might have fish and wildlife, you might have commercial navigation, you might have water supply, hydroelectric, et cetera. So there's like nine authorized purposes. But for the, for the um, context of this conversation, we're going to talk about infrastructure regarding commercial navigation and how that's operated and maintained within the Army Corps of Engineers. So you have districts uh, within the Army Corps that operate and maintain a certain river uh, segment, right? So for example, the Missouri River is operated and maintained by the Kansas City District and the Omaha District of the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, on the Mississippi River, you have uh, the St. Louis District, you have the St. Paul District, and so on and so forth. So each one of these districts then um, answer to a division, and, and I hope that we can show our hierarchy as a graphic here, but our divisions then are that next tier. So divisions may have multiple districts within their uh, responsibility, area of responsibility. So for example, the Mississippi River um, Division, the Mississippi River Valley Division may have um, this St. Louis District, the St. Paul District, the Vicksburg, and so on and so forth. And then you have the Southwestern, the, um, the Southeastern, Northwestern, um, et cetera. And at the, the, the U.S. Coast Guard is kind of broken up in the same way. They have sectors, and of course, they're not only responsible for aids navigation, but the safety of navigation as well, as well as crewing and licensing, the new subchapter M regulations that went in several years ago you know, for the inspection of vessels. So it's kind of a combined effort between both the Army Corps, right, and the U.S. Coast Guard. Right. So after the division level, then you have the headquarters level. There's all these folks in Washington that are doing such a great job um, operating and, and, and being responsible for the divisions who are then responsible for the districts. So now I'm going to turn this around. I'm going to say, what if um, the St. Louis district had I don't know, we'll, we'll throw a number out, $300 million worth of need for infrastructure investment. This may be dredging, this may be harbor maintenance, it could be, you know, a lock rehabilitation at lock 27. Each of these districts have a different number, right, of, of the dollar amount of need that each one of the districts need in order to keep the river operating uh, normally, great and efficient. Those requests then go up to the division, and the division has to compare what is the St. Louis district asking for as compared to what is Vicksburg asking for? Who takes priority over the limited funding that we have? Then each one of the divisions send those requests up to headquarters. But the division, now the headquarters is saying, okay, now this division is asking for this, this division is asking for this, and so on and so forth. So now headquarters is weeding out the actual ask. So by That's the time cheating. Congress de determines you get you get $700 million, or maybe it's $1 billion 
dear Army Corps of Engineers, by the time Congress says, here's your pool of money or your pot of money, the requests are so weeded out that not everything is getting funded. And I think one of the big issues too also is that we have a very cumbersome uh, process of permitting in the United States because anytime there's any infrastructure improvements or rehabilitation that has to take place, it has to go through a very uh, careful process, which generally involves not only the Army Corps of Engineers and also uh, navigation safety in regards to the Coast Guard, but also the Environmental Protection Agency. And those are just the federal side of it. And then, of course, you have the state side of it. And I think one of the issues that we see that oftentimes comes up is that by the time you get through the process, the amount of designated money that you have, right, is it's the cost of the project has gone up considerably. And I don't think a lot of people realize just how dynamic the river system is. You know, like, for example, your locks, right? They're constantly going through maintenance. And it's fundamentally because you have this river system bringing down dirt and debris and mud and all the rest of this stuff. And those locks have to be cleaned out on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Cindy Kuchera, the chairwoman of the board for the for the Inland Rivers Ports and Terminals, has often said, hey, Illinois farmers, come and get your farm out of the river. We're dredging it on an annual basis. So if you want it back, it's fertile soil. It's got fertilizer and everything. So come get your, come get your land. We'll give it to you. <laughs> yeah, there's no question about that. And that's, that's not uncommon in not only the in-river systems, but also in the coastal river systems as well. You know, we're constantly dealing with dredging. And right now, one of the highest concentration of dredging uh, issues revolve around what's going on in the, the Gulf Coast, right? At the head of passes at the Mississippi River, you know, as well as taking care of the, the waterway system that goes up to New Orleans, you know, because of the amount of silt that goes down. A lot of people don't realize New Orleans used to be on the coast. You know, and as a result of all that silt and sediment going down the river, uh, you know, that's why it's way inland right now. And you have that kind of big spread out from the, the mouth of the Mississippi. Absolutely. But going back to infrastructure, it's important for, for folks like us and for the members of our association. You know, Congress just passed the, the Trillion Dollar Infrastructure Act, right, that invested all these funds into modernizing the nation's infrastructure that does include the river system. So I suspect that when we go to Congress this year and say, hey, we need ongoing maintenance funding for the for the Army Corps of Engineers, they're going to come back and say, we just gave you a trillion dollars. What did you do with it? We're going to be like, I don't know, but we know we need more. And they're going to say, well, how much more do you need? Well, we're not quite sure, but we know we need more. And that's just not going to be sufficient anymore. So what we'd like to see from our association standpoint is we'd like to see a critical maintenance backlog of all of the projects, starting with all of the districts, not the weeded out information that gets compared to other projects within the division, not the weeded out information that gets compared to other divisions at the headquarters level, we want to know what's the true infrastructure need for the inland river system for commercial navigation to put us at a competitive um, advantage over the rest of the world. And so um, that's one of the that's one of the main priorities our association has this year is either legislatively or regulatory, either in house or out of house. We want a critical maintenance backlog of projects that the Army Corps of Engineers needs 
to make commercial navigation a priority once again. Yeah, and I, uh, I think we have that same issue, obviously, in the coastal ports. I mean, you know, I pointed out in one of our last podcasts that um, if you look at all of the tonnage of cargo that moves within the continent of the United States, only 10 to 12 percent of it is international, right? Though that always gets sort of the focus, you know, but a lot of people don't realize that 90 percent of it is domestic, you know, and as a result of that, a good portion of that is handled on the inland rivers. You know, it's also handled by rail and everything else, but bottom line, a good portion is handled on the inland rivers because it's the least expensive way of moving cargo down from the center of the country, you know, and into the gateways like the Port of South Louisiana or the Port of New Orleans uh, or Plaquemine, maybe someday, all of this element. So we have that same issue, I think, on the coastal ports because we're always drawing down on the Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund. And uh, the issue that we're facing with that is that there are so many projects right now in the hopper that just trying to get the harbors deeper, you know, so that we can handle larger vessels and everything. And uh, there's been a real race because as everybody's trying to get to these key big coastal ports, a lot of the smaller ports have been facing these issues. And there's a lot there's a lot of contamination in our coastal ports as well. So the money goes quickly. Right. But I have to say, at least I'm happy that in the infrastructure bills, the waterways are being included now. People are thinking about it beyond roads and beyond rail and beyond runways. They're also thinking about the waterways. Oh, absolutely. And I think what we just saw, you know, this past couple of weeks in Ohio with the rail, um, the um, the derailment of the Norfolk Southern um, train there in Ohio, I think it's going to put more emphasis on security and safety, right? So there's different aspects of security and safety, whether it be a physical security, whether it be cyber security, or even security on the actual um, land side facilities itself? Well, even in the aspect of environmental protection, if you think about, you know, a single barge, for example, will hold the equivalent of somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 trucks, right? By moving that onto a single platform with a modern uh, diesel system, you know, that you have aboard your towboats, your main line boats and stuff, and even your or harbor boats and stuff like that, it's cutting out on the amount of stuff that's going into the air any type of the greenhouse gases and everything. So maritime transportation is a very environmentally friendly and as well as a very cost-effective system. Uh, and, you know, for all of us in the port business, right, we're constantly facing all these issues about how, how are we going to get the money to do this? You know, yes, we have to reply on, rely on the federal government, but we also have to rely on the states. In some cases, rely on the counties. That's not where I thought you were going with that comment. <laughs> you know, we heard Governor DeWine in Ohio say, why is this Why is this hazardous material? Why are these chemicals transporting on the rails through our cities? <laughs> My poor pop, you know, I'm, I'm yelling at the TV. And I'm like, well, the waterways will take it. Like, if you don't let the rails transport the cargo, um, you don't want the, the trucks, you know, to be transporting the cargo, because at the same time, Governor DeWine was was on the TV saying, you know, don't let these chemicals ride on the rail through our cities. A tractor trailer was overturning on Interstate 10. So I just want to say that the waterways is the safest mode of transportation, and we would welcome that cargo. <laughs> well, I'm going to be very interested in what NTSB says, because the end of the day, as you know, you know, as a result of the big explosion and fire we had up in Megantic, which is in the province of Quebec, and you know, 
many people were killed in the town when when these rail cars uh, got released and everything and rolled over and exploded and, and literally wiped out the town. There are new regulations that are put in place. And some of those regulations deal with the aspect of, you know, hazardous materials going through these communities. The one thing I was very particular in looking at was what was happening with the rail cars that turned over, right? Because there's a whole new required design. It's like a almost like a double bottom ship. It's a double uh, skinned uh, rail car to prevent this stuff for, from exploding. So they, they drain the cars and, you know, intentionally set the fires. But the reality in all of this is that, you know, if you really want to move this, if you really want to move this cargo, probably the most effective way is to move it, you know, down the river system, you know, because you have a very good record of failing, you know, not getting failures where you're having pollution and stuff going in the rivers and stuff like that. You know, there, there's always accidents, right? But, you know, the Inland River system has been very safe and the lowest number of pollution incidents have been happening on the Inland River system. So it's a po very positive place to go. You have a good story to tell, Amy, I think, in the long run. <laughs> With all Thank of you. This. I think so too. I do hope that our producer will show the graphic, the safety graphic, and show how um, how much safer our our waterways um, for transportation are over other modes. Although and also I, what your capacities are. I think that's all. Absolutely, capacities, and and it is important for me, especially professionally and personally, to say all modes matter. You know, freight transportation cannot happen without all modes. So we're not saying, you know, give the give the waterways transportation all these chemicals and the rail the rail cargo, right? We have to have all of them, or the the entire supply chain is going to crumble. Well, I know, and and of course, I know you wouldn't mind if you got more money. So that's always a very positive thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in the long run, too, you know, the other big challenge is a lot of people don't recognize that the Army Corps, anything you do to the waterways has to go through an Army Corps permitting process, you know, and the Coast Guard, and as I said, state and other folks are all involved in it and stuff like that. But just funding our own infrastructure is sometimes a challenge. And we depend on federal grants, which we've had more up on the waterway system than we've had in the past. But we also are, find ourselves also depending on our own revenue streams and also public-private partnerships. And I think one of the things that has been underutilized in some cases uh, is our port tariffs and our port and terminal tariffs, which I think are very important. And you, there's a different take on the inland side versus the waterway side, you know, when you get to the coastal uh, ports and stuff, because in the long run, a lot of people think that a tariff is nothing more than a, just a list of prices. And what we have tried to emphasize with all of our people that the work that we've done uh, for the inland ports as well as the coastal ports in rewriting their tariffs is that, yes, under the Federal Maritime Commission, if you're dealing with international cargo, you have basically one basic set of standards. You know, if you're dealing with inland ports, you're not really required to have a tariff, but a tariff is a protective document, right? And I think one of the things that I keep running into with the inland rivers, they go like, well, what do we need a tariff for? You know, we have this list of pricing, right? But if you look at a tariff structure, you begin to realize that the tariff is more about protective clauses, about protecting how you do business. And the pricing portion of it is really kind of minor. And I think that's really important that you just mentioned that because when when folks hear the word tariff, they may think of tax. They may think of um, permissions or they may think of rates. And I think the, the crux of it is a tariff can be all of it. Now, you may be talking about the rate portion of the tariff. 
you may be talking about the permissions and protections portion of the tariff, but I think that was a really great, great comment to make. I think in the long run, what all of our ports and terminals, whether they be coastal or inland, have to recognize is that there are some essential documents that every port should have, right? The terminal tariff, which the FMC now refers to them as schedules, right? Terminal rules and regulations for how that affects really the people who use our facilities. Then you have equipment operating plans and you have terminal operating plans. And then you have all these wide range of miscellaneous plans, such as emergency ops plan, our security plan, safety plan, hazmat plan, you know, uh, emergency response. You know, all of those elements are key. And I have found, honestly, Amy, with dealing with a lot of the inland ports that I find that some of those ports are inadequate in the way they've done things and the way they've produced the tariff. They have tariffs that may be very old, right, or, and they have not really updated them. And I've, I've run into coastal ports that the same way, particularly smaller ports. Um, and the tariffs themselves, you know, the fundamental issue with the tariff is it's a CYA document, all right? Cover your asset, all right? <laughs> and in that, right, it lays out for shippers and people using your facilities, right, what they're responsible for and what you're responsible for, it protects your rights and all the rest of it. And as we've written tariffs, we found that it not only, particularly on the inland side, it not only involves the barges and the towboats and stuff like that, but it also involves your rail network because a lot of your terminals deal with intermodal rail as well as your truck drivers and stuff. Right. It's, a lot, it's a lot tighter on the coastal side because we're all living with the Marine Transportation Security Act. Right, but inland ports should not underestimate the value of having a tariff because the tough part of this is when you have an accident or something occurs and you wind up in court, that's when you find out just how inadequate what you put in place really is. That's absolutely right. And I wanna ask you, um, as far as a tariff, right? Um, and, and the importance and the need to cover your assets through a tariff. There should be no distinction between a public port and a private terminal. They should That's all correct. have tariffs. Absolutely. And I think what's important, and, and people misunderstand, when people see hear tariffs, they right away they think of cross-border tariffs. A tariff defined is a list of conditions and, and costs, all right? And it can apply to just about the border, but it also applies to terminals. But you're right. Private terminals should have a tariff because in that tariff, are all the things that they expect. You know, I, I often use the example of, you know, when we were when we were young, all right? Of course, I've heard people did this when we were young, right? You know, you go out after high school, you have a few too many beers, you come home, you're sleeping on the couch, and your dad comes downstairs and he looks at you and he says, never again, because as long as you live under my roof, you're going to live by my rules, which is exactly what a tariff is about. As Anytime anyone comes onto my terminal, they're going to live by my rules. And if I provide a service, right, they're going to pay the fees. But the, the most valuable part of the tariff is when you wind up in court and then you recognize just how critical your provisions are. It is a CYA document. And I think that every, everybody who's listening to this, if you haven't revised your tariff in a while, you know, whether you're a coastal port or an inland port, take a look. Take a look. And see, you know, if, if the paper is faded, it's time to, up to update your tariff. Uh, absolutely. And I, and I think about some of my members who are interested in getting into the container on barge service, right? It's, I 
I feel like for our members who are are handling dry bulk agriculture products, right? Like we know our farmers, we know our co-ops, we know the truckers that are bringing um, the cargo into our property and so on and so forth. So we're, we've gotten comfortable with them and the relationships that they understand what we expect when they're on our property. For those who are getting into container on barge, you're talking about taking 36 containers or in some cases 72 containers per barge times however many barges. How many new truck drivers are you going to have entering your property? What are the rules that they need to know? What are the permissions that they need to be aware of when they're entering your property? Not only, not only that, but what services that you as a terminal provide and what you're going to charge for it. Right. And, you know, people always misunderstand how to set tariff rates. You know, they, they'll look at the port up the street, you know, or up the river and go like, well, if they're charging five cents a ton, we should charge four cents a ton. And that's not how it works because people race to the bottom. People need to recognize that when we talk about the movement of cargo, it's about from the point of origin, the destination, all the inclusive costs. So looking at that aspect is to set rates that are reasonable, that cover your costs, that provide a little bit of a profit. Right. Uh, because, quite frankly, all marine terminals, public and private, are entitled to, to make money because our infrastructure is expensive, has to be maintained. And sometimes our tariff rates are the one primary area uh, that we use to generate the money necessary to meet the match requirements right, of a grant application. Right. Very, very critical. And I think if uh, one important thing would be helpful to your members is to ha have them look at a tariff. Even even the coastal terrorists, I get I get people send me tariffs that you know they still have things in there like loading granite aboard sailing ships. Come on, really? <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Even even taking a look at an existing tariff as an example of what should we be looking at or including in ours. Even better, you know, it, a lot of us have like infrastructure week on the hill. You know, we all have tax day coming up. It's a it's a certain dedicated time of the year where we look at certain issues. I think that we should all be having a tariff week every single year. Maybe it's the week of June 1st is dedicated as tariff week. And this is the same time every year that we pull out that document and say, is this still current? Am I still protected and covered? There are a lot of new provisions that come out on an annual basis, little things that have popped up that uh, we build into tariffs now. We, of course, uh, IAMP does tariff workshops you know, where we actually bring people in and they can sit down. We will let them walk through their tariffs, let them walk through what they're doing and actually help them to put it together. Uh, a lot of these documents were crafted so early on that they really look like very complicated legal documents and they don't need to be complicated. They can be simple. And of course, a tariff then allows you to build on that terminal rules and regulations, which apply to the people come aboard, even the simple things like safety and where and, and security requirements and things like that that are necessary. So uh, I, I absolutely agree with you. Most tariffs are updated on an annual basis. There's a whole little process that you go through. Uh, but the reality is, is that, you know, people just need to take a minute and look at what they've got and say, you know what, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time, if nothing else, for us to take a look at it. And unfortunately, not a slur for our legal friends, there are less and less lawyers and attorneys that focus on tariffs than there were, all right? And so, you know, we will write a tariff for somebody, then, 
you know, they need to find somebody within their organization or somebody in their in their area that can review the tariff to make sure it complies with state and federal regulations. Thanks for that over, overview of the tariffs. I really hope that our listeners take heed to your suggestion in covering their assets and revising, at least visiting their tariff um, and updating it. What other challenges on the international side are you facing? Well, I think one of the big restrictions we're seeing right now is what's happening with the protection of the right whale. Uh, there are a lot of limitations that are in place, particularly speed and closure areas, which are causing you know, delays in how the ships uh, actually transmit. They, there are uh, were times when, you know, we were very deeply concerned because they were setting speeds for the vessels that would actually make some of the vessels unmaneuverable. The whale population, despite everything that you hear, has actually increased. You know, about a decade ago, it was about 300 white whales. Now it's up to about 340. I've heard 400 in some cases. Uh, and so, you know, it is a big issue, and we are facing that. And, of course, you know, some of the other issues that we're facing is availability of fuel and some of that. But in the long run, you know, the whale issue is probably the most sensitive one we have right now. And, and i got to be honest with you, all right? You know, when I was teaching at Mass Maritime Academy, I used to go out and lay out on the beach at Buzzards Bay, and I can honestly tell you, right, that nobody tried to tow me back out to sea. So I, I was very fortunate from that. So, but, uh, but you have your own issues, like with the Asian carp and everything like that. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of environmental concerns, and that might be a great topic for a future program. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think we're getting toward the end now, and I really appreciate everybody's attention. And uh, I hope you have found this to be uh, very interesting. We would appreciate your comments and your feedback, particularly about any issues that uh, we have uh, that you might think of be of interest. And uh, as always, I say, if you're not a member of the Inland Rivers Ports and Terminal Association, you should join. Because That's it's right. a great organization. It's probably one of the most cohesive and collegial group I've run into. And, of course, we have over 2,700 uh, certified personnel, including multiple hundreds of your people on the Inland River system uh, throughout the world who have gone through their professional certification. And we're going to be doing a program in Portland, Maine uh, in the fall, which is a great time to be there. The lobsters are fresh uh, and they're not endangered. Uh, so uh, that we well, would look forward to people coming and joining us up there in Portland in the fall. It's funny, I was just going to say, you know, once you join IRPT, we're going to very quickly send you over to get trained through the IMPE. So. <laughs> and that's great. Well, Amy, it's always a pleasure, always a joy to see you and uh, the chat. And I look forward to getting together here in the near future. Um, I'll be coming to your conference, I hope. And uh, certainly, I hope you'll come to our conferences. And I uh, hope that all of you uh, will take the time to uh not only continue to keep track of what happens. Amy's got a great website that has a lot of great information, including job postings. And of course, our website as well, which we have all of our educational programs on it. So I guess until next time, I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful and blessed week, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeff. I can't wait till our next podcast. Sounds good. <laughs>